0: hear God's word to us now from 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 6. Paul writes, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, that is single, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Picking up in verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him, and this is my rule for all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were brought, bought with a price." And do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let them remain with God. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she is not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as if though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free of anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your benefit, not to lay any constraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, And has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet it is my judgment she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God, the Word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Oh, Father, wherever we find ourselves this morning, our station in life, whether as single or married or divorced, or wherever we find ourselves before you, whether as those in faith or those perhaps outside of faith or struggling to remain in faith, help us to know that you are the Lord that meets us in whatever station we find ourselves in life with grace, and that you're always moving towards us, and drawing us toward Yourself and not away. And so meet us this morning in Your Word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. There is almost no Protestant that takes this chapter serious. (laughs) There is almost no Protestant tradition that honestly takes this chapter serious. And uh, especially contemporary, um, we don't really wrestle with the logic. And, and part of the reason is Paul's very clear when he's arguing about whether you should marry or whether you should stay single. He's, he's in a sense giving his own judgment. His own opinion would be too low, but I mean, he's, he's giving you reasons. He's making an argument for why you should remain single instead of getting married. Um, and yet, we don't really, uh, we honestly never wrestle with this text. And yet, and yet, it is, it's a radical text. And in the early church, for the first few hundred years, this text was actually held up as the ideal rather than marriage. And that many saw that the ideal was singleness. And so, this morning I want us to wrestle with The radical implications behind this. I want us to, in a sense, make sense of how on earth can what Paul says be true (laughs) or possible, especially in our own context. And I've been talking about um, this idea that I've introduced uh, of a new creation sexuality. A new creation sexuality. And and really this, this this whole passage depends on having this understanding of how the new creation has changed transformed our understanding of sexuality. Just, just as we look for, for a good 12 weeks at the, the original creation and how the original creation was the basis and foundation for understanding marriage itself, what Paul says here about singleness requires us to look ahead to the new creation in order to understand what it means. And to be clear, a new creation sexuality is not a canceling out of the old creation. It's a reaffirmation of it in many ways. It's an affirmation of the goodness of the body. That's what the resurrection of Jesus is about. The goodness of the body. It's an affirmation of the givenness of male and female. It's an affirmation of the covenantal bonds of marriage between male and female. It's an affirmation of the goodness of marriage as God has given it. And, of course, when both Jesus and Paul get to questions of sexual ethics, in every case, they always turn backwards to the original creation story of Genesis 1 and 2. And so to talk about a new creation sexuality isn't, in a sense, to cancel out um, the old creation, the original creation, and yet there is a transformation. There is a change. There is something that we could call a new creation sexuality, and it's the emergence of the possibility of singleness as a viable option in the world, which is new, and it might not seem like a big deal, but it's pretty incredible. Before Jesus came, in the Old Testament, in the Jewish tradition, there you cannot find a single positive affirmation of singleness. In fact, it was quite the opposite. But with Jesus and the advent of Christ, you have this affirmation of the goodness of singleness. And it marks this question of a transformation. So, what I want us to focus on today in particular is the, the nature of that transformation and the, the, well, the one question I want to begin answering, and i only begin to start answering this, it'll take another um, seven weeks to fully answer this question, but is this. How is it possible to live a sexually fulfilled life as a celibate single person? How is it possible to live a sexually fulfilled life as a celibate single person? That question might seem to be complete and utter nonsense to you. And yet, the dawn of the new creation and the person of Jesus Christ makes this a possibility. And that's what I want to explore with you this morning, what you might consider the basis or the foundation of a new creation sexuality. So there's three things in this text that I think are really important for us to wrestle with. There's a transformation, an orientation, and a consummation around new creation. A consummate, I'm sorry, a transformation, an orientation, and a consummation. And the first thing is this, is this transformation. And before we actually can get deep into what Paul is saying here and what he means, I think we need to step back and consider what does resurrection mean for how we think about the body and how we think about the creation itself. And last week, on Easter Sunday, I preached on the resurrection body. And in that, we, I looked at uh, 1 Corinthians 15, in that section where Paul talks about sowing seeds, and this, that the body is like a seed. It's sown in the ground and it dies. And it's resurrected. And the, Paul's point was that there's a sense in which the body, the same body you have, is the same body you'll have in heaven. But it's like the tulip bulb and the flower, right? The tulip bulb, you look at the bulb, and if you never saw a tulip, you would actually never have any sense of what that flower will look like. And Paul is saying, your body, right now it's like a bulb. But someday in the resurrection, it will be glorious. <laughs> it will be like that tulip. You can't, your mind can't go there. There's a transformation, and yet it's the same thing, right? And that's the essence of resurrection, right? That God is transforming the universe. But when God gives marriage early on, in the, in, the, in the original creation, when God created us, he made marriage as part of the cosmos. The institution of marriage, the reality of marriage, is part of God's creation. It's the very last thing God creates in the cosmos, which points to its specialness. And as I've already mentioned, in ancient Jewish culture and in the Old Testament... Men and women had a duty to marry, an obligation to marry. You will not find a single positive reference in all of the Old Testament to the single life. The one time that God commands somebody to be single, it's the prophet Jeremiah. And he is commanded to be single for this reason. Your life will be a sign of my judgment on faithless Israel. Your life will be barren. You will have no children. Just like faithless Israel will have no progeny. And so the single man's life, this man Jeremiah, he's barren. He has no children. He has no spouse. And it's a sign of God's judgment that's going into exile. Right? You have no positive affirmation in the Old Testament and in between of the single life. There's really not a way to imagine life without being married. And the reasons actually are quite good. It's not as if it's not an arbitrary decision. And we, again, I talked about this at length in the first part of our sermon series back in the fall that God created us as image bearers to have certain desires and instincts that can only fully be satisfied in marriage. God created you to desire intimacy and oneness, right? Adam found no helpmate, nobody that was like him. God puts him to sleep, and he draws the woman out, brings the woman to him, and Adam says, "Ah, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. One that is like me, that yet is not like me. (laughs) A mate. And the man and the the woman shall come together, and they become one flesh. It's that idea of intimacy and union, that as human beings, we desire to be known and to, to know another, to give ourselves to another, to be intimate. And so there's a sense of intimacy that we all are driving towards in marriage, and the old creation and the original creation was the fullest expression of realizing that intimacy. But there is also this other aspect of fruitfulness. That when God created human beings in his image, he said, be fruitful and multiply. Right? The most obvious and frontline way that, that we fulfill that is by marrying and having children, progeny. And part of our progeny and part of our children and offspring is fruitfulness, culture-making, vocation. In the ancient world, vocation was centered around life of the family. And so there's this urge for fruitfulness, for productivity. But there's also this urge, the third one, is belonging. We were created for a relationship. We do not do well on our own. We need community. And so what happens if you're a single person in the Old Testament or even today? You can have a sense that you have no place you belong. You have no family. And so God has given marriage to meet these deep human desires. And so when Jesus comes along and he's teaching in in Matthew 19 about divorce and he lays down a rather strict understanding of the grounds for divorce, the disciples are astounded. And they say, well, if that's the case for a man to divorce his wife, it's probably better not to get married. And then Jesus said, well, yes, there's another option for you. And he says, not everyone can receive this saying, but those, only those from whom it is given. There are eunuchs. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive it, receive it. Jesus is saying, you know what? A eunuch is not as one who is unnaturally cut, who cannot be married, cannot consummate, right? There are eunuchs for the kingdom, there are eunuchs that... And because they're born that way, and this is a possibility. And what you this is so revolutionary. I know I've been talking about this. You guys are all used to the revolution now. But you have to understand when Jesus, as a single male in Jewish culture, he's a complete outsider. He's he's so outside the mainstream, and here he is affirming singleness. This is an incredible thing. This has never been done in Jewish culture and salvation history. And Jesus basically shows us in his very life that you do not have to be married. You do not have to live a sexually active life to be fully human and fully alive. There's this new reality that is set in. The kingdom of heaven. The new creation. And Jesus points us towards that. And so when Paul... You have to understand, so what where, where Paul picks up here, he's building on the teaching of Jesus. And he's actually taking it further. Jesus is sort of a little more agnostic than Paul in the way he talks about marriage and singleness. He says both are options. Both are options. Paul is saying both are options, but he's saying, you know what? Seriously consider the single life. It's actually better. This is his judgment. It's potentially better, is what Paul is saying. See, the power of the kingdom for Jesus, as when he talks about being a eunuch for the kingdom, he's saying, and this is Paul's understanding too, is that the power of the kingdom is so strong in your life that you don't even desire marriage. Marriage, or rather singleness, for Jesus and for Paul, uniquely is a sign of the new creation, of the dawning of a new era. The very possibility of it points to something new. Something that, if you were to look at the old creation and how God created us, you would never arrive at singleness as a viable option or an ideal option. And yet, that's what, that's what Paul is saying. And now, the critical question you're probably asking is, well, okay, um, How does that work? (laughs) How does it work that singleness, celibate singleness, can be sexually fulfilling? Now, I want to go back to those categories that I mentioned earlier. Intimacy, fruitfulness, and belonging. See, under the old creation, the original creation, intimacy was consummated with union with one's spouse. That was the ultimate sort of expression of it. Of course, you have intimacy with other relationships. But Jesus says, and teaches, marriage is a temporary union. Marriage is a temporary union, and it's passing away. In Matthew 22, he says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are they given in marriage, but they are like the angels. And what he's saying is this, "In in heaven, you don't realize this, there's actually no marriage. There's no marriage in heaven. Marriage will be is a thing of this age, and someday it will pass away. That's a pretty incredible thought. Now, think about that as married people, that the person you are married to now, will, you will not be married to in heaven. That's a pretty incredible thing, especially for those of us who've been married for a number of years, to think that there will be a state in life when I will not be in the same kind of union with my li- wife. And yet, that doesn't mean that in heaven we're all unattached. No, there's another marriage, there's another union union with Christ. Union with the bridegroom that replaces and overtakes our earthly marriages. So, the new creation points to this intimacy that is already directing itself to our ultimate destination. And that the single person, in a sense, is already living into that reality. In a sense, they are already ahead of those of us who are in married. But there's this other aspect of fruitfulness. Fruitfulness in the old creation, the original creation, was primarily through procreation, through having children and through work meant to support that family. But what you see in Jesus is you have a vocation towards the kingdom. Jesus comes, he comes to the disciples, the first disciples, Andrew and Peter, fishermen. He says, I'm gonna make you fishers of men. You're fishermen, I'm gonna make you fishers of men. Jesus doesn't go to the priestly class. He draws no disciples from the religious professionals. He draws them from fishermen, he draws them from tax collectors, political agitators, Ordinary, mundane, secular vocations. And what he's saying is this, is that all work, all things can be for the kingdom. There is no, there is no uh, sort of uh, hierarchy or tiers of spiritual and non-spiritual thing. Women. Think about the ministry of women in the life of Jesus. They're not just... Your identity as a woman in the ministry and life of Jesus isn't just procreation and having children. It's actually women are supporting Jesus, financially, in the Gospel of Luke. Women are providing hospitality for Jesus and his ministry. Women are praying. Women are bearing witness to Jesus. And so, what you have here is you have the possibility of fruitfulness, of, of a kind of connectedness and life that doesn't depend entirely on the natural family. Again, Jesus doesn't cross it out, but he opens it up and belonging. And we'll talk in depth about all these things. Jesus. The biological family, the natural family, is no longer the sole means by which we belong in the world. There's the family of the church. This this first becomes our first family, right? Marked by baptism, that you can belong as a single person, as a eunuch, and you can have brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, parents, and you have kinship and you have belonging. And so all of these things become possibilities in the light of Jesus, and we're going to explore those more in depth in the in the coming weeks. But I I want to back up for a moment and just offer a few reflections. This might seem like pie in the sky for a lot, because the reality is is that actually being single is hard. And I I actually think that Paul recognizes that, and Jesus recognizes it. When Jesus says, "For those who can receive it, should receive it," I think what he's saying is it's it's not mandatory that you, you be single. If you can receive it, receive it. And to be single is hard. I mean, Paul is talking about how being married is hard. And the contexts in which he's addressing are, are quite different. And yet, to be single, I think, in our culture is particularly hard for a number of reasons. And it doesn't have to do simply with whether you can have sex or not. It has to do with the idea that oftentimes you're disconnected. You're lonely. You, you don't have this sense of belonging. And, and yet, it's still... It's possible to live a full, a full life as a single person in Christ. And, you know, when it comes to the conversations about singleness, I, I, I want to I demythologize um, this idea of the spiritual gifts of singleness, which comes out of this text that people say. By demythologize, what I mean is I want to dispel and really just critique this idea that there is a spiritual gift of singleness, we often talk about this, um, and it comes from that verse where Jesus, uh, where Paul says, um, where Paul talks about each has his own gift from God, one as from another, and we take that and we read it as well. Some people have the gift of singleness, and some people don't, right? And oftentimes, I've had so many conversations with people, and they and they you know like I'm just wondering, do I have the gift of singleness or not? Do I feel it or not? And we often we turn this spiritual gift into this into the sort of subjective sense of whether I feel like I can be single or not. This is not what Paul means. What Paul is talking about here is not a spiritual gift in the in the sense that we think about gifts from, you know, teaching and mercy and things like this. He means this as it's this word grace. And that he's talking about he's talking here about a grace that each has his own grace that God has given and it corresponds to your calling. I've had a lot of people who are single and I was single till I was 25, so I do remember what it was like. A lot of people, go, I just don't have the gift of singleness. They're single. I don't have the gift. So I'm like, you're single, aren't you? Are you, you're faithfully celibate, right? Yes. Then you have the gift of singleness. I mean, the reality is, is that here's the deeper truth in the teaching of this text. Often that wherever whatever station you find yourself in, whether it's married, happily or unhappily, whether it's single, happily, or unhappily, there is grace for you. There is grace for your calling. That God will provide. Don't turn it into some, and, and all of callings, what, and even the best of marriages are often very difficult. And you don't want to be in them. And you're not feeling it. And so don't think of a gift, there are this grace that Paul is something that corresponds to some subjective sense of, yes, I feel really deeply called. I just don't desire to be married. And I don't, you know, that's just, I mean, it's just not the reality. Don't let a spiritualized understanding of spiritual gifts muddy your understanding of where God, wherever God has put you right now, God has you there. And that's not to say that you can't change your position, your station in life. But know, friend, that there's grace. There's grace there to live out that calling faithfully. Okay, so I think to understand more deeply what Paul is saying here about Um, the reasons for singleness, we we have to understand what actually, the the argument he makes about why singleness is a a superior, in his mind, option. And it's this point I want to make about orientation. For Paul, and the deeper truth of this, one of the deeper truths of this text is that the new creation sexuality means that, that our sexuality itself has a new orientation. It has a new orientation, and what I mean by that is, so in the, in the original creation, our sexuality, is, it's an energy, it's a passion, it's a drive to be united, to be connected with another, an in intimacy, but not only that, to be productive, to be fruitful, to establish yourself, to have heirs, to have a future, all of these things, right? All of these things are part of sexuality. And when you think about your own sexuality today, don't just think about physical sexuality, genital sexuality. Friends, think about how much energy in your life. those are You've spent emotionally thinking and longing about a spouse getting married or staying married and your children. Think about how much energy that is, right? And so... The new creation sexuality is this. This new orientation that Paul is saying and Jesus is saying is this. Is that our sexuality, it's tr- being transformed. Away from simply the natural family and having children and being united and having a wife and a place in this world to the kingdom of heaven, to the new creation. There's this shift that's taking place. And what Paul says here is quite radical. I don't think... And I think the, the, hard, the difficulty of this text is... I think when I was reading this, when I, before I was married, really wrestling, maybe I am called to be single. And I think I, there is a sense that often you get that, man, if I really love Jesus, I'll stay single. And there's a way that this test can sometimes be like, well, I guess I'm just not spiritual enough, right? And, you know, I can't go into why that's not a good reading of this text. That's not what Paul is trying to do, is to create spiritual guilt for those who get married, and yet, what you do need to see, and this applies both to those who are single and those who are married, is that your calling as a Christian, all of us, is for exclusive devotion, total life devotion in giving to the Lord in a way that's radical. It, you know, there's a way that sometimes we, we tend to see ourselves in the church as well. There's guys like Chris or Phil or, or maybe a few really unique people in the church that are They are just totally devoted. They just, they're giving their lives completely. And I'm going to, you know, take up a different station that has church in a little bit here, right? To where there's these different tiers, right, of seriousness. And oftentimes this text has been used to kind of reinforce that. But what Paul's assumption is, actually, is that all of us are called totally and completely to give our lives to Christ. And of course, our stations in life are going to you know, factor into how much we're able to give time and energy and certain things. And yet, all of us are called to total life giving to the Lord. In other words, sexuality has a kind of missional trajectory. It goes, it's that passion and energy and direction is pointed towards the kingdom of heaven in this new way. And the person of Jesus actually shows us. When I, I, a number of weeks ago, I talked about Jesus' sexuality And that the greatest act of Jesus' sexuality was his passion, right? His radical self-giving to us on the cross. And that is the power and energy of, of our sexuality to give ourselves to the kingdom, to give ourselves to one another, to open ourselves up so new life can come in around us. Okay. Now, there's a couple temptations, I think, that keep us from actually doing this, both as married and as single, that keep us from devoting ourselves to the Lord. And I want to talk about marriage first. A couple idols. And I'll be brief on this because I will have a whole sermon where I'll deconstruct this. But friends, the reality is this. is that, And Paul recognizes this. Is that marriage is a heavy burden at times. It takes a lot of time um, and energy. You, you really do have to attend to your spouse's needs. You cannot keep your covenantal commitments and be faithful. And it's the same with children children take a lot of time and energy. Our children are out of town this week, and I, I say this a lot, sometimes in other, and I love my children, so, be, so don't think I don't love them. But I have four, I, I have five extra hours of day of work time. Five extra hours a day. More. Because my children are gone. And I'm enjoying that. I miss them. I'm looking forward to them coming back later today. But, but the reality is, is that your commitments as a parent and as a spouse take time to where you can't do other things, right? And Paul is very clear that you ought never to sacrifice the health of your marriage or your children for the sake of the kingdom. These are not like things you should do. And this is more, pastors have to be careful of this. However, there is a way that as married people, it's so easy for us to, to be, turn our marriage and our family into an idol. And, and you have this idol of the tribe. And when you have kids, especially young kids, it is so easy for them to be your whole life and universe. Because they will take everything such that you have no time for others. Or at least you feel like you have no time for others. And so there is no others. And so you're just about your family, right? You're just consumed either with your, in your marriage and your family. And I want to talk about this in the next couple of weeks. But friends, you have to structurally make space in your life as married people, even with a bunch of young kids, for other people in your life. That's part of what it means to live into the new creation as a family with kids. But singles... I think the danger as a single life is the idol of freedom. Singleness in the ancient world was very different than singleness now. Singleness in the ancient world was an odd, strange thing. In fact, especially as a woman, it was a dangerous thing. To be unattached made you vulnerable, financially and sexually. It was society in your status was built around Marriage. And so to be single was an odd thing. I mean, there just was no space for it. And today, singleness, actually, it's quite the opposite. Except for maybe in religious, conservative circles, singleness is actually the ideal state. Why? Because it gives you maximum freedom and independence to do what you want, right? To kind of move from here to there, to have the job you want, to spend your time how you want. And so it's it's not an accident that more and more people are putting off marriage. And yet... There is a way that when Paul talks about singleness here, and the good of singleness, I find that sometimes singles in the church want affirmation as being singles, but they want the affirmation in the way that the world understands singleness, not in the way that Paul understands it. In other words, they want to be affirmed as single, to be able to be free and independent, and to go and do as they want, and to be basically uncommitted. And what Paul means, actually, is this. He's like, your singleness is actually a gift to the church to be more involved, to give more of your life, to be more committed because you have more time and more energy and more money, potentially. See, singleness is not... We, and I want to just challenge the singles here. And I, The reasons for being single, I know, are very different for many. Some of you don't want to be single. Some of you would love to be married. And I know it hasn't turned out. Some of you actually really enjoy being single. And the reasons are different, and oftentimes they're outside of your control. But, friends, we ought to resist the way in which um, we seize on sort of independence and autonomy and stay in that state simply for those reasons. What Paul says in verse 22 is important For he who was called as the Lord as a bondservant or a slave is a freedman in Christ. Likewise, he who is free is called to be Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not be bondservants of men. Friends, the freedom from marriage, the freedom from having children is not a freedom to just pursue pursue the American dream and our ultimate destiny, and whatever we want. It's a freedom to give oneself undevoted to the Lord. Undivided to the Lord. So this radical orientation that Paul has, I think you have to, if you're going to buy into this, you actually have to buy into his, the, the third point I want to make, which is his understanding of consummation, the final consummation of our sexuality. I find that the most difficult thing about this text is actually not what Paul says about singleness, nor divorce or marriage, but actually what he says about the imminent end of the world. If you look at verse 26, and then uh, down in verse 29, Paul says this. And he's arguing again about, he's giving reasons for why you should stay single. He says, I think in the view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Then jumping down. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Those who buy as though they had no goods. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. The present form of this world is passing away. What is Paul talking about? Now, a lot of commentators say that, and there's a lot of truth to this, that the early Christians, Jesus included in the New Testament, they thought that the second coming of Christ was going to be imminent in their generation. And so if you know Jesus is coming back within 20 or 30 years, why would you want to saddle down with a wife and kids? And, and so a lo- the commentary goes, well, clearly Paul is wrong. We're 2,000 years later. Jesus hasn't come back yet. So what he says about singleness here, we can sort of take with a grain of salt. I don't think this is a good understanding and interpretation. To, to hold that view isn't necessarily to, to um, um, contradict Scripture. Um, but I think it's a short, I, I think it's, it's not a full understanding, I think, of Paul's thinking about the end. The reality is this, and I think Paul would affirm this even in 2000, what he said there. We live in the overlap of two ages, between the old and the new. And that as, as Christians, in a sense, we, we sit at this funnel boundary of heaven and earth. And your very body, that in betweenness of your body, sits between two ages. And we have a foretaste in salvation of the new age to come. And singleness, in particular, becomes a sign of what that new age will be as you begin living into that. But the reality is this, and this is what when Paul says the present form is this world is passing away, it's a present continuing. It's in the midst of this present form of the world, your marriage, this creation, this nation, your hobbies, your career, the city of Milwaukee, all of these are forms that are passing away. Not in the sense that God's going to blow it all up and start from scratch, but they are in the process of new creation, that God will someday come back and they will be transformed, like from the bulb to the tulip. And so when Paul says, the, the, the end is coming, what he's doing that is very important for us to listen to is this. He's putting a question mark. He's checking our desires about our investment and our marriages and our careers and our life, not because he has a low view of any of those things. But what he's saying is this is that, listen, there is something that is coming that is far greater, far more beautiful, far more satisfying to your heart's desires. Union with God, the end of our desire. See, you, it's a misunderstanding of Christianity and Christian sexuality if you think that Paul is down on desire or sexuality. It's the opposite. And I, I love what C.S. Lewis says in The Weight of Glory um, when he's talking about desiring God. He says, our, our, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. And like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he can't imagine what it has meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And we are too far too easily pleased. See, that's what marriage is like. That, that's There's so many ways that marriage, romance, our careers, the goodness of life here, I mean, they're, they're like mud pies, and they're good things, and they're not bad. And yet there's a holiday at the sea, at the ocean, infinite joy and beauty that awaits us. And Paul is trying to say, listen, don't get obsessed about this. Begin to turn your heart's attention this way. Do not treat these things as idols and as ends in themselves they they're passing away. And that word consummation, I think, is so key. We use that often of marriage, right? Consummation of the marriage. What does that mean? It's a, it's a sexual image, right? And the Bible is not afraid to use sexual images to talk about the end of the world. This is precisely what, the, in the book of Revelation, we find. At the very end is a consummation. It's a wedding. It's a marriage feast of the Lamb. It's Jesus coming as the bride to the bridegroom. Spirit, the spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears say come. The consummation of all things between us, the bride of Christ, and our bridegroom is sexual in nature in the sense that there is a union and joy and infinite goodness that all of history and creation is pointing towards. Okay, let me just wrap up. I know that this is a hard, especially for those who are single, it's very hard sometimes to wrap our heads around what this looks like. And whether you're single or married, there's, there's a tendency for us to so invest ourselves in this, our imaginations in this idea of falling in love and of romance. And we've, we, we have this storyline and this narrative that says if I find the right person, I'll be happy. I'll be complete. I'll be... I'll be total. And you know, there's a lot of good about that. There's a lot of good about falling in love. And yet, what you have to understand is this, is that that all human love, human romantic love, points beyond itself. I mean, you can have the best marriage in the world, and yet it's not going to actually scratch the deepest itch, which is a deep spiritual itch. There is a love yet deeper and more powerful that God calls us to. And all romantic love is just a spark from that, from the volcano and the brilliance of God's love. Let me just close with these words from Revelation. Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of a mighty pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen. Let's pray. O Father, we pray that you give us an imagination for the consummation to come the wedding of the bride which is us to our bridegroom to the marriage feast of the lamb and the infinite joy and pleasure and fruitfulness and bounty that will and is our life will be and is our life in Jesus Christ wherever we find ourselves lord whether in marriage or in singleness we pray that we would make jesus more and more the deepest most passionate love of our lives. And may it not be just empty talk (laughs) and high-minded spiritual reflection, but may it be truly true, O Lord, that we might learn to love you more deeply with all of our lives and turn and orient our hearts towards you. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.